1: The 2020 US election will live in American history. Removing Trump from office during a pandemic, no less, required American changemakers to develop and deploy creative new ways to engage in electoral politics. A multitude of new electoral strategies surfaced. Some of these required the translation of more traditional forms of organising and mobilising into an electoral arena. One of these strategies is called deep canvassing. It borrowed from Chicago-style relational organising and used the power of storytelling and open questions to talk to people of what they care about on their doorstep. Today's Changemaker Chat is with Adam Fried. He is the director of Changing the Conversation Together and one of the people who spread the practice of deep canvassing across the United States. We talk about how he came to organising and to electoral politics after Trump was elected. We hear about how they do it. And he even runs through the kind of powerful conversation that you can have as a deep canvasser. And he doesn't hold back. He has something to say about the power of face to face, even in a pandemic, and even when many Democratic officials banned this kind of organising in a bunch of states in 2020. Deep canvassing has been around for a while, but be very sure its footprint is only growing. Now's your chance to find out more. Let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that are feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers is supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers, and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. And you can sign up to our email list at changemakerspodcast.org. Adam, welcome to Changemaker Chats. Thank you for having me. It is our pleasure so soon after the election to be able to be talking to someone who is right in the thick of it. So my, our first question today is, I guess, for you to explain to our audience, you know, what kind of changemaker are you? And I know that that's sometimes not an easy question to answer, especially for someone who's done a lot of different types of changemaking. But how would you describe what you do?
0: I would describe myself as an organizer, community organizer. I have always enjoyed working with people, bringing them together, connecting folks who otherwise wouldn't connect to give them the opportunity to use their God-given talents to create the change they want to see in the world.
1: So that's a broad role. And I know a a bit about community organizing, having also being one of those people who would identify with that uh, role. But you've, you're bringing that uh, skill set and that way of being in the world to uh, electoral politics these days. Yes. Tell us just, just briefly how how that works, being an organizer in the electoral arena.
0: So I have, as you know, you know, I've been in the world of community organizing, union organizing as a social change professional for the last 20 years or so living and working in several different uh, metropolitan regions throughout the U.S. and abroad for a bit. And um, I was always working on projects where there were communities who were trying to build power to affect change. And so one of the ways you build power is or, or you can affect change with the power that you've built is in relationship with powerful leaders in your community. Frequently, not exclusively, but those are elected officials. So I think I thought about, you know, how do we make an impact on that? And we've done, you know, I've done many different kinds of campaigns around issues and, you know, advocacy campaigns, legislative campaigns uh, around the issues that I'd worked on with different communities over the years. And the thing that was always exciting to me about the community organizing that I came out of was on the one hand, we accomplished these amazing results, right? Housing, healthcare, schools. I mean, it was work that touched the lives directly of literally hundreds of thousands of marginalized and low-income individuals, enough to feel really proud of yourself to be involved in it. But the other thing that was exciting about it was that these results of these campaigns we're not coming from some sort of like think tank uh, of like advanced degrees people who know what "quote unquote" the people need, right? It was really based on the dreams and visions and struggles that came up in the kinds of you know, in-person conversations where leaders and staff of the organizations were fanning out into the community and just trying to help people design their frustrations with the world into strategies for change. And so it has a lot of different names. We call that sometimes community organizing. I now prefer the term relational organizing, and uh, even that term has now been co-opted. But uh, the thing that I saw happen after Donald Trump was elected was while there was this explosion of new activity and activism and all these new groups that were doing new things and, you know, there were these silver linings. There was a real dearth in the space where I was living and what I saw happening. There was a real missing opportunity to really have focused training and development of leaders. There was a real lack of strategic thoughtful electoral strategies where people could say, if I come for a weekend day with you, I will have this much impact. There was a lot of howling at the moon. You know what I mean? And so I really saw, I, this is the most partisan I've been in my life, Amanda. And, you know, I've spent a lot of my career actually fighting, you know, big city democratic machines who are selling working people down the river. But when Trump was elected, it was a different story. You know, and so I really saw the need to stop Donald Trump as an all hands on deck fight. It was a use every tool in the toolbox fight. And so here I was coming out of the world of community organizing, seeing the impact, seeing how much great, amazing initiatives and campaigns come when we are really able to apply that. And I thought, well, shoot, let's bring it to this fight too.
1: Spectacular. And we're going to talk in a little bit about what you did in the election and its implications for not just America, but for thinking about electoral politics across the world. But before we go to that, I guess I, I want to give you the opportunity to tell us a little bit more about why organizing for you, you know, there's an assumption in in the conversation, right? That that you're an organizer, but you know, there's lots of different ways to make change in the world and being an organizer is, a, is a definitely a choice. It's not easy being an organizer. It's certainly not the easiest form of change making, though it is potentially one of the most satisfying. What led you to the path of choosing that form of work? Why was that so important to you?
0: Well, you know, so I grew up in New York City. My father, who had children late, he was—he was he was 50 when I was born, retired early while I was in the beginning of my high school year uh, career. And I was sort of struggling in high school at the time. I was struggling with school. I'd already had a career of struggling with school. And uh, I was having these history classes where they were throwing all these books at me and he basically sat me down and had me read aloud to him the history that i was really struggling to plow through it was before by the way i i later learned i had a uh, a reading disability but uh you know we got into this pattern where after dinner we would go to my room and he'd sort of kick back in my bed and i would sit at my desk reading out loud and it wasn't just sort of a like recitation of what was in the book he would like stop me and share his excitement about like how interesting it was when we learned something and we would reflect on it together. You know, he was born in Europe and came here fleeing Nazi Germany uh, as a little boy had lived through the great depression and then served in the war and then saw the, you know, went to college on the GI bill. It was a very different sort of experience than a lot of my contemporaries parents who had sort of been like alive during the sixties. And so he didn't have this sort of like experience learning the way I did or learning what I was learning. And just, it was just so interesting to be reading that with him together. And really history, it came alive. It wasn't just like a a series of dates that had to be memorized for some, some test. It was really, it prepared me for the possibility that just something unpredictably crazy could always happen. And I'd say even more importantly, I learned that history wasn't like just these series of facts you had to remember, but that really things happened because of the choices people make and the actions that they take and that there's so much more to learn. And so I was never one for, you know, I I love learning. I love reading. I love scholarship. I hate school. So like things like law school or uh, whatever else was not really for me. I really just learned that i enjoyed working with people and i enjoyed exploring different areas and learning new things and meeting people and realized i was sort of good at bringing people together and very passionate about politics totally disgusted when i like interned in in dc for the democratic national committee one summer and eventually got connected to you know some activist organizations and i kept hearing this term organizing organizer Uh, and, you know, eventually bumbled my way into the AFL-CIO's Organizing Institute. They were recruiting kids off campus when the labor movement was trying to have, there was a movement within the labor movement to focus more on organizing, you know, and really to build the labor movement in the, I guess it was the late 90s, early 2000s. And then uh, just kept seeking out people who I thought were good organizers and, you know, who I could learn from.
1: You know what's cool? I, I didn't know that bit about your story, and I did the. That's how I got into the union movement too. Same, 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 same. Different, but that that pathway. When the labor movement opened itself up to students, it was a, it was an exciting time. And so that was the journey into to organizing. I, the story of your father is really is a very touching story. I can see how it stays with you. I mean, community organizing, I guess, allows you to have that be able to mix the big and the small is how I like to think of it. You know, the small, the intimate of the relational meeting, the conversations with others and the sense of bigness in terms of we're going to explore and understand and play a role as public figures in the world.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And also like, even on the issues you're working on, like, you know, a rat that's running down public housing while also talking about here we are in the biggest city with the largest public housing uh, development big enough to you know, in- in- encapsulate the entire population of Atlanta and like thinking big picture about that. And yet, you know, yeah. really being rooted in the real experiences that folks are living with day in and day out.
1: Yeah. So t- I- I'm curious um, also about, so you were an organizer for a long time. I know you're an organizer in the state of New York. You took some of those skills with you when you went to Israel organizing. Is there anything that sits out with you, is it sits with you about, you know, what you learned through that process that you still, I mean, I know there's a million things you learned through that process, but is there something that really stands out from your work as an organizer that you think is a sort of carry on insight that sort of st- has stuck with you? You know, the first thing that comes to mind when I ask this question, perhaps, about the, the most important lesson you carry with you as an organizer in communities.
0: That's an interesting question. So, you know, traveling abroad, seeing which of the lessons are truly universal from organizing was very interesting. I (laughs) would love to compare notes, you know, Australia, even just to US, even if we're still in the Anglo world, the English speaking world. But I I think that the, the, the power of the personal connection the the individual meeting that face to face thing i think that is a universal thing i think that is universally powerful i think it is the essential building block that is continuously overlooked by anybody who wants a shortcut to power and it is in every experience i've had the essential ingredient to building true and lasting power going out and really listening to people and not just like listening like you know a therapist, but like engaging, you know, where you're also there and you're putting yourself out there. I, you know, working with organizers and leaders and, and, you know, colleagues, the people who are the most effective in this thing we call the public arena, hands down were great at building and maintaining and cultivating relationships through that work.
1: I couldn't agree more. (laughs) I couldn't agree more. But so then like, Let's talk about the transition to electoral work. Because while I think it's actually probably true that across history, some of the most effectual players in the electoral arena are actually intensely relational and carry that skill with them with great, with great capacity. The electoral arena is not often known for its relationality. It's often a highly transactional um, uh, space. How did it work for you to then do this transition from community-based organizing to taking the skills of organizing to to electoral politics?
0: So the thing that I basically did, I had been working in the the Industrial Areas Foundation International Network of Community Organizing Initiatives. They were in close relationship and had been doing various experimentations with with Dave Fleischer and the LA LGBT Leadership Lab who really took what I would call relational organizing and the way I explain it is they they basically took the lessons, the best lessons of organizing and applied it to issue-based canvassing, where they spent a lot of time and energy recruiting, training uh, volunteers to be really good canvassers, focusing on the power of that individual face-to-face meeting, where you're connecting with folks authentically and respectfully and connecting through stories rather than ideology. And they applied it to first around marriage equality in California and then around anti-transgender bias. And they became famous for this because they brought in these academics, these political data scientists who studied it through randomized control trial and showed it to be the most effective form of voter persuasion
1: that had ever been measured.
0: And that's... That's what we call deep canvassing. And so I had been in relationship with uh, Dave for many uh, years. We had been talking as I was designing other community organizing electoral strategies, and then thinking about what role I wanted to play in this effort to stop Donald Trump. I got into a deep conversation with him, and we basically hatched this plan. He launched... His deep canvassing efforts in California. I launched changing the conversation together with others here in New York, where we were going to use deep canvassing for the first time in an electoral setting uh, in the 2018 midterms to flip a congressional seat, and that's what we did. We recruited several hundred volunteers who knocked on you know several thousand doors. We had conversations with two thousand, she's almost three thousand uh, voters in an Obama Trump. Uh, district, where in Staten Island, the fifth of the you know there are five boroughs in New York City, that's how they're broken out. And so it's the only sort of Republican outpost. It's the the last major Republican outpost in New York City. And so there was a Republican congressperson there. Staten Island, as an island, had voted for Obama in two thousand twelve, and then Trump in two thousand sixteen. And so we were particularly interested in. What was called the Obama-Trump voter, you know, the person who did both. And yeah, we spoke to almost 3,000 voters and Staten Island in that election went Democratic by 1,100 <laughs> votes.
1: You were the margin of difference, Adam. <laughs> Your, the well, you know,
0: I wouldn't say we we're the only ones that made the impact, but yeah, I think we played a pivotal role. We really did. And we did, you know, follow-up studies to, to evaluate it as well. We went back to the voters after the election in January, and said, you know, did you end up voting the way we thought you did? And we found that by and large, we had made the impact we thought we had. So,
1: wow, there's a really, there's an insight in this that I wasn't expecting as much that actually some good change makers, good organizers, good people who want to make impact in the world could do well to have some of their work validated by someone on the outside. Like this, having this evidence based yeah. um, impact is quite useful. As a story, as much as anything else, yeah, yeah.
0: And you know, there's something remarkably powerful about going back to the voter in January because they're like the weekend before the election. They're like everybody wants to talk to them if you're in a swing district, right? No one's answering their phones or their doors, right? And uh, and then you're coming back in January. You care like, about me? You're still
1: interested? <laughs> I thought I'd be you dump and run. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I I also feel like that's maybe fitting of the model in a sense that it's it, there's a greater connection in this approach than in others.
0: Totally. Yeah.
1: So I want to get so let's get into this you know the, the mystery of this all deep canvassing. So t- tell us what it is right for those who've never heard of it for, before what is it what's different about it how does it work? Deep
0: canvassing is basically a form of voter engagement where canvassers connect to voters emotionally through storytelling, being kind, empathetic, and respectful conversation. We spend a lot of time training folks on the power uh, and skill of how to both tell and elicit stories from voters.
1: So how do you do that? Like, t- Tell us a little bit about what the training and support is involved to be able to support canvases to do this kind of work.
0: Yeah, so the training, is, it's significant. It's not, you know, there are people, by the way, who love conventional canvassing, right? Conventional canvassing, in the U.S., at least, it's like talk to as many people as possible. You're usually just targeting the regular voter, the expected voter. We were expanding who we are talking to. The In Staten Island, we were looking for the Obama-Trump voter. In Pennsylvania, we decided to focus more on the Democratic-leaning and frequent voter, but still broadening the base beyond the usual suspects and well whereas in conventional canvassing you're only having conversations that are maybe you know one or two minutes and there's usually like a tight message that the about the camp candidate or whatever the campaign message gurus are saying you should be focusing on in deep canvassing it's really more about the connection between the voter and the canvasser and so the main juice of this work is through storytelling and it's through personal storytelling. So there's a script that we write up and, you know, it it gets adjusted and it goes through an iterative, iterative process throughout the campaign. But the real heart of the work is through to be a good deep canvasser, you need to be good at telling a personal story. And what we found to be particularly powerful was telling stories about somebody who you love. And so it sounds touchy feely, but What a great antidote to this world of hate and fear-mongering and just, you know, darkness and despair. Here we are leading with people we love and what makes them lovable. And so through that storytelling, the volunteer is, first of all, showing that I am not a robot. I am, as as a canvasser, making myself more vulnerable, which will then in turn, we have found, makes the voter more likely to open up and trust the canvasser. Because if I'm making myself vulnerable, you know, the best kind of stories, of course, are stories where you don't look like the hero, right? And so I tell a story, actually, one of the stories I got that I found to be particularly helpful came a little bit out of the pandemic. My I tell a story about how my 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 son, who also had a more serious reading disability than I did, Uh, and was struggling in school, we did not quite understand the extent of it, had really not been getting the help he needed in school. And so the teachers were giving us the runaround. And at one point, there was a teacher who took my daughter, uh, took my wife aside and said, you know, we really don't have the capacity to help your son. And I just, when I heard that story, I nearly exploded. I was like, who are the freaking professionals in this conversation? Like, if you can't help us, like, what, what are you doing with your time? You know, and I, I was like going to hit the roof. And my wife just sort of took me aside and said, you know, you got to assume the best about people. You know, these are like hardworking professionals. They're doing what they can with what they have. There are too many kids in the classroom. Like the New York city school system, like does not give them the resources they need. So eventually we, we ended up by the way, finding a great, specialized school he's in a much better setting but i told this story all of that happened before the pandemic i should say but i tell this story about how during the pandemic thinking about my wife a lot because we're all locked down you know and we're all under all this pressure right and i'm a little bit shorter with my patients and i try to really think about that like assume the best about people and and i love her for it because it really brings the best out in me so that's like a story that i tell and I told the story to this woman, Kim, 19-year-old woman, Hispanic in Norristown, Pennsylvania, Democratic-leaning area. And when I first started talking to her, we asked at the beginning and the end of the conversation, on a scale of 0 to 10, how likely are you to vote? In the beginning of the conversation, she says, zero, I'm not likely to vote. And then, why, why are you not likely to vote? Well, you know, I don't really get involved in that stuff. But one of the other questions I had also asked her at the beginning is, if you had two minutes to talk with President Trump, what would you tell him? And she said, you are bringing the racists out more than they already were. So it's like, here we have somebody who hates Trump, knows how he's encouraging racism, and yet doesn't get involved in that stuff. So I tell the story to her. And then she opens up and starts, you know, I'm able to actually engage her in a conversation about person who she loves is her boyfriend. Turns out this woman, Kim, has social anxiety and her boyfriend really helps her like navigate social scenarios, you know? And I basically say to her, you know, Kim, you and I both know what it means to love people and have people love you, right? We know what it means to need people and have them need you. That's like what most people are like. We all know, most people know how to live that way, right? Most people at their heart, I believe, are good people. You know, maybe they have bad judgment at times in their electoral choices. But then you have people like Donald Trump. It's like the total opposite. He thinks only about himself. He'd sell, you know, his family down the river if, if they got in his way. You know, he's nasty. He's he's corrupt. He's a bully. And he's totally the wrong message. He's, he's totally the wrong leader for our country. And that's why we've got to stop him. And eventually she not only agreed... That she should vote. She registered to vote right there. And uh, actually on election day, she texted me to tell me that she voted. (laughs) You know, and so these are the things that we teach people to do. So we do story workshops. We do exercises on, you know, creative writing exercises and improv exercises on people you love. We uh, practice exercise. We we do exercises and drills on how do you get people to open up and what kind of questions do you ask?
1: Oh, Adam. (laughs) You have me in kind of tears. <laughs> it's really that's a. I mean that's 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 not traditional electoral campaigning. That's not what no. people are taught at the door. I've done right. the rap style um, door knocking myself um, a while ago, and it didn't feel like that. That's a quite extraordinary mix. So, for, so our listeners get a sense, you know, like we've just had the election, you know your organization was very involved in Pennsylvania. Just give us a sense. You've given us a sense of how you, how you um, enabled people to work and what they were capable of doing at the door. Tell us about how it worked across the, across the state and your impact.
0: So after we flipped Staten Island, after we helped flip Staten Island, there was, you know, this, our story went viral and we were looking for allies and groups in Pennsylvania to work with. And we developed this relationship with a couple of indiv- a series of indivisible activists in the Philadelphia area. Um, Philadelphia is, you know, an hour and a half to two hours from the New York metro area. So Philadelphia, of course, is the biggest city in Pennsylvania, which was one of the three states that was decisive in Donald Trump's victory in 2016. And it was going to be central to stopping Trump is was turning PA blue. And so we were focused on developing a deep canvassing campaign in Pennsylvania. And we started, we had our first canvas in September of 2019. And we just kept canvassing all the way up until COVID hit. And we had hundreds of people showing up, room packed, many doors being knocked. And then COVID hit, and like many organizations, we had to sort of figure out, what do we do now? We went on to Zoom, you know, figured out phone calling strategies. And then towards the end of June and early July, as we knew so much more about the transmission of the disease and had been really struggling to reach people on the phones, not unlike many other organizations and not without having learned a lot about those groups that do phone call, Uh, do phone banking extensively, we began to workshop and think through how we might be able to get back to the doors safely. And we recruited a couple of our volunteers who were health professionals to design what we eventually called our safety first canvas. This included volunteers getting tested before they came, wearing masks, but also making sure we gave masks to the voters so that our volunteers were only speaking to people with masks as well. And we kept everything outside. You know, we did this for a variety of reasons. And uh, one of the reasons is we were looking for infrequent voters. Infrequent voters are are transient. They are harder to reach on the phone. But if you knock on the door and the person has moved, you're more likely to find the somebody who's replaced them who is of a similar demographic. Right. But, you know, ultimately, the main thing is that deep canvassing has been shown to be four times as effective in person as it is on the phones.
1: Wow. Four times.
0: Four times. So for every hour you're on the phones, it's the for every hour you're at the doors. It's the equivalent of four hours on the phone. And we found that voters would take the masks. We figured out how we started scouting out areas for canvassing where there were single family homes high-density of uh, single-family homes so that we didn't have to go into apartment buildings. We kept everything outdoors. You know, we did a series of pilots in July and August, and then basically from the second half of August through Election Day, you know, we had hundreds of people come through this process of our safety-first canvas. I think we may have—we're we're still getting the final numbers in, but I think we ended up ha- having about it may have been nine or 10,000 uh, conversations with voters in person.
1: Yeah, Wow. At a time when actually not everyone was doing that, yeah?
0: Not only was not everyone doing that, I mean, there were people who were criticizing us. Like, we were in the New York Times as one of the only groups willing to talk about the fact that we were doing this. And the other person in that article was the leader of the Biden campaign, the campaign manager who was saying, you know, if we really care about community safety, we shouldn't be going back to the doors. We can do everything on the phones. We can do everything on text bank. You know, we can do everything with postcards. And it's like, people... We're facing Armageddon. <laughs> like, you cannot win this fight on phones, text, and postcards alone, right? We need to be using every tool in the toolbox. And, um, I mean, we were serious about our COVID concerns. Eventually, other groups did come out into the field. And then we were almost, with some of us, some people mocked us for being so concerned about COVID. But we were as serious about stopping COVID as we were about stopping Trump. And in fact that the two are linked. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and so... I, you know, Pennsylvania was one of the decisive states, as you likely know.
1: Yeah, we, um, we, we, we caught co- we co- that even in Australia, right? <laughs>
0: uh, I know, you know, the whole world is watching, right? And the amazing thing is, again, the numbers are still, it's still, they're still, it's going to take a little while to do a full deep analysis. But the initial numbers of the neighborhoods where we had canvassed the most the turnout is significantly higher than similar neighborhoods, and um, yeah, it's it's actually upsetting to me that more campaigns wouldn't contemplate how can we do this safely when we know this is how we win. Why do you think that is? You know, it's a good question. I think I think a lot of it has to do with just the dominating trend of this like philanthro capitalism. Where you know everyone's looking for the latest quick fix, and uh people get excited by the latest technology, t v ads micro targeting online ads right but you know yeah, that, back, that's
1: a universal, I tell you <laughs> right
0: and it's not that the that smart people who are well intentioned can't use some of those things to you know some effect i mean there's been studies that show that certainly phone banking and text banking you know have had nominal effect, but it was a giant experiment for us to nearly universally disarm on one end of the spectrum. And it's like people have been talking about what happened with the polls. The polls were so off because, you know, Biden won the White House, but the Democrats lost everywhere else just about. We lost this, you know, we, we, we were expected to have won the Senate. We lost ground. There wasn't a single Republican congress member who lost their seat this year and there were reportedly four million people who volunteered for campaigns which is twice as much as obama twice as much as uh 2018 and i think it's because there's just this sense of well i can do all these other things on zoom I mean, I think it's, look, to be fair, there are people with legitimate concerns The we really don't know what it's like to live in COVID, right? We're still sort of figuring it out. What, are we, what is it like to live in a winter of COVID, at mm. least in this hemisphere? But, mm. uh, you know, I think that there is a, I think Democrats don't really know how to fight like their lives are on the line.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting even to go into the postmortem that's going on now. Which is to diagnose the, the what you what you're talking about, which is the sort of the 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 weaked result in in the congressional races as being a question of ideology. People were too progressive, people were not progressive. It just seems like it is what do you think? tell us tell us what you think. I mean, it seems like a, more a question of how they ran the campaign, yeah
0: exactly, exactly i I, I um am not particularly interested in the fight over, you know, was it this slogan or that slogan, or what's the message, what's the, the um, message that voters were trying to send? I don't think we really know. I don't think we really know what we could have done. It would have been, it would be really interesting to look at the impact of the campaigns that did go to the doors versus those that didn't, right? The culinary workers union in Las Vegas went to the doors big time. Right. Um, most congr- like in Georgia, no one is allowed to go to the doors, according to the Democrats. Like this is supposed to be the election of a lifetime and no one's going to the doors. Right. No one in the in the down ballot. I mean, even below the 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 house races in Pennsylvania. We also lost ground in the in the state house, which was, you know, we had just made the Democrats had just, you know, they were so close to flipping one of those houses, and they lost ground there too. No one was doing anything in the field. And so I think it's absolutely, you know, I read this great quote, which is amateurs, what was it? It was amateurs talk about vision, but the professionals talk logistics.
1: (laughs) (laughs) An organizer would say that. (laughs) But it's true. Like, how are you going to do the thing? Like, you know, I I can paint a pretty picture too. You know what I mean? Like there's a sort of, like it's, it's, there is a question about how it's to be delivered that really does matter. I'm wondering, uh, just a final question on this deep canvassing piece. I, w- I wonder if you could talk to, do you have a sense of, like deep canvassing is a completely different way of doing electoral politics. And what you're describing is actually building a relationship with voters, of canvasses building a relationship with other, of people connecting with their own story. I mean, you're talking about a kind of transformation for people at a variety of levels that happens when you do community organizing, but in a different place, in a different site with a different group. Do you have a sense, um, you know, and i really feel about, you know, how it affects people on the door. Like I I imagine it's not, it doesn't end at the ballot box, right? I imagine that these conversations stay with people. I mean, I wonder what impact do you hope or do you imagine that this kind of canvassing, if it was at a bigger scale, what impact could it have on America or indeed on other places, you know?
0: Yeah, no, I mean, an, an enormous impact because we are so... All of our views of the world are so filtered through these various media outlets that we choose to or are through our, you know, social settings sort of guided to uh, listen to. One of the things I've loved about community organizing is that it forces you to deal with people who you might not want to, but you can be in alliance with. You know, you might not... uh, agree with everyone on everything, but you can agree with them on this, and you think it's really important, important enough to really spend a lot of time to work on and really, you know, put some of your skin in the game. And um, when we're all just online or, you know, watching cable news or in, you know, so, you know getting our news through social media, it distorts your whole experience of, of what the people who don't agree exactly with you believe. Right. And so to answer your question, I think that if we were able to get, let's say, you know, even just like several dozen large organizations like unions to really embrace something like this, you know, billions of dollars are spent on television advertising. What if we took like five million dollars and put it annually to, you know, Staffing up an organization or a series of organizations like ours, right? Year-round training, cultivating of teams of volunteers who were really good at this, who could fan out into communities during election time. And throughout the year, I think that it could break down barriers. I think that we would not be so vulnerable to, you know, lunatics like Donald Trump or the scarier, more articulate versions of them from really tapping into people's insecurities, you know, as a way to get uh, cheap political shots. And I think it could really build huge transformative change.
1: Well, we have to hope so. Yeah, I hope so too. I think that that kind of, we need to be able to build these relationships and support these relationships in so many places. Organizing has so much to teach other forms of um, people power. You know, we need to give it a go. Thank you, Adam, for sharing with us these glorious stories. We appreciate it. We're going to check back in with you, I'm sure, in the future to get more reports. You never know if COVID ever goes away. Maybe we'll see you traveling to lots of different countries, including Australia, to, to give us more knowledge on how it all works. we
0: would love to. Thank you so much for uh, for having me and for uh, helping us share a story and for all the work that you do.
1: Many times over. Thank you so much, Adam. Okay. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. Changemakers is produced by Ben Keating and our audio producer is Jules Wookerer. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers, and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at Sydney.edu.au backslash policy-lab. We are also supported by the Organising Cities Project funded by the Halloran Trust based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories. We have a weekly training program called the Changemakers Organising School, a great place for anyone to drop in or come in every week for training about all things community organising. All the details and registration are on our website.